And welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson with you today on this edition of the program. And, wow, we're seeing the breakdown of a civilization around us. It seems to be increasing at exponential speed, socially, economically, culturally, educationally, even politically. This is what the end of a civilization looks like. But then, again, where do we go? What shall we do? Uh, As Francis Schaeffer would put it, how then should we live? And that that question comes before us all the time. And I've been accused of being a little too negative at points. And, you know, okay, I get that. I get that. But let's wrap it in an optimistic overall perspective of what's going on in history. We we live in Western civilization. That That's that's where we're operating right now. We're seeing the disintegration. And, and it's come about by the dry rot of a Christian apostasy, really. It wasn't the Muslims that did this to us. It wasn't... It wasn't the uh, the Hindus that have slipped into Western civilization to unravel the whole thing. This is the dry rot of Christian apostasy, and the worst form of a dry rot, the ethical nihilism concocted by an apostate people really have it in for the Christian God and have lost a sense of their own sanity in the process. I think that's really the best way to, to put it. I don't particularly like to just say it's secular humanism or... It's uh, some kind of uh, materialistic worldview. Much better to say, as just post-Christian apostates with an attitude. And it's a self-conscious, self-destructive agenda. I I believe it's both self-conscious and self-destructive, for the most part, for those who who lead this uh, cultural conflagration. But uh, what do we do? How then shall we live? That's the question for us. We, we do come back to this again and again as the author of Epoch, The Rise and Fall of the West. I did my best in the last chapter to summarize where do we go from here? What do we do from here? Now, obviously, we get back to the original orders. Disciple the nations. Disciple the nations. Stay on task. Stay on task. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. So these are our orders. We stay with it. Well, today, uh, I'm going to bring an important author onto the program, who's done an important book, not really a long book, but a book that goes straight to the point and uh, brings the relevant application to bear. Uh, C.R. Wiley is a pastor and author of several books and a speaker. By the way, at our conference down in Missouri, coming up March 10th and 11th, that's a Reforming Family Conference. I hope you can make it there. It's uh, Branson, Missouri, March 10 and 11, and uh, Chris will be there. So let me just read just for a moment. Before I bring Chris on with me, I, I want to read just something for you because this gives you a flavor for where we are. Metaphorically, something similar has occurred in our culture. Western civilization still has curb appeal. Things like economic growth, advances in medicine, and emphasis on human rights seem to indicate things are in good shape. But something has been added to the mix that serves as an intellectual and spiritual basis for society. The institutions at the foundation of our way of life don't seem solid any longer. And the most important of these institutions is the household. And paradoxically, many of the other institutions in our society that once relied upon the household have turned against it. Everything from multinational corporations to public schools now dismiss traditional household norms as retrograde and even oppressive. And I'm sorry to say that even evangelical Christianity increasingly looks like a fair weather friend. All right, so that just sort of lays the groundwork for what we're going to get into. We're going to get to solutions uh, on this uh, program, but uh, the book is The Household and the War for the Cosmos, Recovering a Christian Vision for the Family, and now Chris joins me on Generations. Welcome, my friends. Good to have you with us. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Kevin. Great to be with you. Yeah, Western civilization has curb appeal. That's true. It's just, just foundations seem to be rotted out, sitting on a Florida sinkhole, so to speak. You know, something's something's a little quivering under our feet. Seems like uh, the society has has gone down. It's a family that has been eroded, and that seems to me to be the foundation of any civilization. And isn't that what most I don't know, sociologists in the right minds would say is that throughout history, the family is the the basic foundation of human social structures? Yeah, I think everybody everywhere knows that, or at least knew it. I think we've uh, been given over to a strong delusion, as we see in Scripture, uh, that's a curse. So um, we've been essentially given over to our, as you noted, our, our rebellion, and yeah, we're, yep, we're yep. experiencing the repercussions of that. There are different ways that it's playing out intellectually, socially, etc. It's all tied together, though, and I think your your point uh, in your opening is absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Romans 1. Romans 1. Just sort of drilling. N- not as if this hasn't happened before, to some extent or another. Yeah, even Augustus Caesar shows up. He's, he's trying to recover the familia, right? I mean, he's actually right. kind of a pro-family emperor and gives maybe a little bit more life to the secular empire. But let me ask you this. Do you think we've ever been here before? I think of Emperor Nero dallied with homosexual marriage, but it's not as if it was instituted in the Roman Supreme Court. You know, it just seems to me we're, we're, we're a little further down the pike on this. Yeah, I think that that's that's true. I don't know of any examples that would put it on the scale that we see, you know, there are pockets here and there you can look at in history and see some pretty bad stuff. But in terms of the the scale of what we're dealing with now, I think it's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. But we want to give hope. And one of the things I want you to do, Chris, is just to run over your own testimony for a moment. There are refugees that crawl out from under the wreckage and, and that's happening all the time. I look at my own church and, some of the neat stories of uh, redemption that have happened. So, you know, there, there's redemption going on, right? I mean, tell us a little bit about what happened with you. Sure, yeah. Well, I come from a kind of odd background in some ways. Uh, my father was a junior academic. He was at Washington. He was St. Louis and before that in Buffalo at the University of Buffalo. My mother was something of a, you know, uh, a child of the left, not, you know, in a crazy way, but she was definitely leftist in her outlook. And, and so I was raised in this kind of an bohemian world that surrounds college campuses. And my folks were, this is the sixties, early seventies, but this primarily in the sixties when everybody was seeking, but nobody was finding everybody wanted was sort of like ABC, anything but Christianity. And so they were getting into different kinds of things and eventually ended up with Scientology. And mm-hmm. uh, that was before, you know, people, at large, kind of had, had, had got a sense of just how crazy that that is. But um, anyway, it swallowed them alive, and and mm. it led to the the solution of our family. And so, uh, following that, I was uh, ward of the state. Uh, spent years in Western Pennsylvania, which was a good thing. That's where my mm. ancestors were from. But while I was in that area, uh, I became. Well, I got involved in a little blue-collar evangelical church, 
that God really used. And hmm. it was through that little church that I became a believer. So that's kind of the short story. Mm-hmm. But as mm-hmm. the high points or the highlights. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Th- thank you. And that, that story is, is key to where the civilization is going. There's always these refugees coming out of it. One of the, we're going to talk about family culture, and I want to kind of cut right to that right now because I know a, a good deal of your book is about that. And it's interesting as I talk about the Gramscian Borg, the cultural wrecking ball, and, you know, the Internet, the Hollywood influence, the public schools, the the gigantic centralized system that seems to to be taking the culture in the wrong direction. One of the things I like to say is to various audiences is the one thing standing in the way of all of that, you know, standing in the way of the U S Supreme court, standing in the way of Hollywood and the gigantic multi-trillion dollar educational monolith is you mom and dad. <laughs> you know, It's right, just like, right. there's one thing that's in the way. Well, God's in the way of it, obviously, <laughs> you know, sure, right. uh, tower of Babel kind of thing, but, but also, you know, God has raised up parents. We're talking about family based culture and you know, I mean, mom and dad, you know, they, they, they stand in the way. And I think it's just a matter of parents understanding this, especially Christian parents. Is it that simple? Well, it's a big part of it. I mean, they need to be part of a, a larger community themselves. Right. A healthy church environment and that kind of thing. Uh, extended family and so forth. But I think that I think that's a huge part of it. I think, you know, when we think about mothers and fathers, generally speaking, there's a kind of passing of the baton at a certain point with regard to the work of mom and work of dad. So what I usually tell guys is, is as I say to guys, you know, when your kids are small and cute, mom is the center of the world. When they're big and ugly, that's when you're really important. Okay. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, your, your importance in, in grows in significance the older your kids get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your point is that uh, the household isn't just a shelter in the war zone. It's the command center from which we launch our attacks. So it's it really is a God-ordained institution by which big things happen. That's what you're saying here. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think that's the thing that's always kind of uh, been the stumbling block for the totalitarians. They can't actually produce human beings. They might have aspirations for that, you know, maybe through some kind of factory system. <laughs> yeah. But what they'll produce is sociopaths and really people who can't carry the load that they want them to carry when it comes to our just, you know, making a civilization functional. So they, they need us, they need uh, healthy households, but at the same time, the healthy households are in the way. So they, they go back and forth depending on how the winds kind of are blowing culturally at the moment. um, They don't think they need us. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're doing a lot to undermine, uh, you know, our work in our own homes, et cetera. But there's still a great deal to be grateful for in the United States in, this, in terms of our, the freedoms that we enjoy, and yes, particularly yes. with regard to education. Mm-hmm. So, like, I lived in Connecticut. I live now in Washington, two, two very blue states. But in both of those places, homeschooling is very healthy. Yeah, yeah. We live in Colorado. One of the bluest states are turning extremely blue. But uh, we have one of the worst governors. Oh, wait a minute. Oregon 
<laughs> Wait a minute, Washington <laughs> State. Okay, well, we're all about the same place. But yeah, by God's grace, we have a, a very flourishing homeschooling movement. Our conference is attracting 5,000 parents uh, each uh, June time. Yeah, I mean, somehow God is working in the midst of this uh, this meltdown, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. So the first thing is that you know, the household recognized that they have been ordained by God for a very important role. That as a household, we we are to take dominion. We are to build godly families. We're to build a heritage. We're to build uh, biblically based economies. Is that is that accurate? Is that the way you see it? Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's right. You know, so there's there are two ways to look at it. You know, you can look at it from the ground up, and then you can look from the, you know, from heaven down. If you look at it from the ground up, you know, there's just the practical matters uh, that relate to functional household and how an authority is necessary to, to keep a household sound and just, you know, all the things that you and I deal with on an ongoing basis working with families and parents and so forth. But then if you look at it from, from up above, if you look at it kind of like a, a heavenly perspective, you, you see that in a household you have an analog to the end of the world, which is uh, a wedding. Between, you know, you have the, the bridegroom, and then, you know, for there to be a bridegroom, you need a bride. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the bridegroom, mm-hmm. of course, is Christ, and then the bride is the church. So in our households, we have a microcosm of the end of the world, and that puts a great deal of responsibility on husbands and wives to play their part in that great larger drama, that big story that is being recapitulated or, or you know, lived out in miniature on a daily basis in our, in, in our households. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about piety as well. You've got an entire chapter on piety, but what's the right kind of piety? How, how would you define yeah. that? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to, to, to stress is that uh, in antiquity, Pius, the, the word that we derive the English word piety from, had a larger social significance than it does for us. So generally today when people say piety, they, they think about their quiet time, you know, with the Bible and prayer, or they might think about their grandmother and, you know, her devotion to her church or something like that. And all that stuff's great. But in antiquity, piety uh, referred to your moral obligations to your benefactors. So the embodiment of piety, the personification of piety in the empire, the Roman Empire, was, was Aeneas, uh, the hero who flees Troy and leads the refugees after, you know, Odysseus and all those guys, uh, just, you know, burn Troy to the ground. So the Romans believed that they were descendants of the Trojans. I, I, I think that that's lost on a lot of people. But they, they believe that, uh, that they... They were, you know, the, descended from the refugees of that disaster. But their founding father, their ancient hero, the person they looked to was Aeneas. And throughout the Aeneid, which is that, you know, the, the story, which, by the way, Augustus Caesar had commissioned Virgil to write as basically the national epic or the, the epic of the empire, his, uh, the way he's referred to throughout uh, the Aeneid is Pius Aeneas. So, Pius Aeneas is pious because he fulfills his responsibilities to his parents, to the gods, to his to his wife, to his children. He's 
he's uh, a man who knows his duty and is devoted to his duty. So that's another way to think about it. It's a devotion to duty. Mm -hmm. Okay. How does that apply then to, uh, to the Christian family? Sure. Well, of course, as Christians, we know that our, our, our benefactor is God. Uh, he's the one who's provided us with life and health. And so we owe him our devotion. But there's also a sense in which we owe, you know, devotion to our father and our mother. You know, honor your father and mother. So we see that right there. Right, the right. So it's not an, so much an either or, but a both and kind of thing. Obviously, we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But one of the ways we express our devotion to God is through our devotion to our parents. It's um, mm-hmm. his law that establishes their authority in our lives. And, of course, they were instrumental in in, in our being here. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we owe them stuff to something. You know, we owe, them, we owe them regard. We owe them devotion. We owe them obedience even. One of the things that surprised me, just to, you know, jump in here for a moment, was uh, so I was uh, reading from the old, I think it's Leviticus. I can't remember exactly where it was, but we, we are told throughout Scripture that we are to fear God, we're to reverence God, to live in respect and reverence and worship and service to God. And and then you read in Leviticus that we are to fear our mother and father. You know, <laughs> what? Right. And I checked out the Hebrew word, same word nara is used to, you know, right. to, to honor, to fear, and to reverence father and mother. It's the same word used there as it is to fear and to honor our God. And of course, ultimate fear and service and reverence and worship goes to to God, we get that, but then there's you know this, this sort of this other command that God has given that is reiterated again in Ephesians six one. Yeah, yeah, I think our parents are the embodiment of authority, and they're the first authorities that we come to know as children. And there's a healthy fear. I mean, I yeah, I know yeah, we live in right. a time where people will you know point out that there are you know, really damaged people who damage their children. I, oh, yeah. I get that. Oh, yeah, right. But at the same time, uh, let's let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that there are some healthy moms and dads out there. <laughs> right, and, right. And they're going to they're gonna exercise their authority in healthy ways, and those, those parents uh, are to be feared, revered, in the way you're talking about. Yeah. Exactly. And, and yeah, yeah, but there's lots of mistakes made. There are lots of sinful situations. You know, the, uh, the angry control freak father, right. you know, you've got so many examples where men and women, fathers and mothers have failed in their obligations to God. And, and, and as I see it, it's, it's because they're operating independently of God. You know, that, that's where the anger shows up. It's the refusal to, to, to submit to God and to, to, to fear God and to worship God. And to th- then you begin to transfer anger, control, a sense of sovereignty over the ch- children that is not right for you. So anyway, there's, there's other ways in which that is taken apart. And, and maybe you could just, you know, give us some examples of where Christians go wrong in terms of, they're handling the household. Well, I think you just identified one that's really important to, to, to keep in mind. I think a father uh, and a mother, but I'm obviously speaking mostly to fathers in this respect, really has to keep the sort of the welfare of his children in mind and their long-term interests and how those are 
connected to the, the long-term prospects for the household that he oversees. So my kids are all grown. I have three adult children now, and they have households of their own, and I've got grandchildren. And, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that all my kids are believers, and they're working hard to raise their children uh, in the right way. Uh, but there was always a sense that, that I tried to convey to them that they were part of some larger project. In other words, this is not just all about them. You know, I, I wanted to, and I worked to affirm their gifts and give them opportunities to see those gifts develop and blossom. But there was always a, a larger purpose that I tried to help them see, and that obviously is the glory of God. But the glory of God, as it is expressed through a multi-generational household. Mm. And so being the father, it was my responsibility to uh, look after their interests and to help them establish households and then pass on the covenant to them, the new covenant, to carry forward uh, with their children. And so that puts it all in, you know, in the proper perspective. And so when I would exercise authority in different ways, sometimes I'd speak, you know, authoritatively when the, the situation called for it. And most of the time, it was very conversational. You know, it was just kind of mentoring and uh, observing and encouraging and all the things that you would hope would happen in a, in a healthy, you know, father-child dynamic. Hmm. Talk to us about our perception of the family itself in the midst of this autonomous individualism that has so characterized evangelicalism. It, I yeah. think it's resulted in the breakdown of the church as well. It just isn't that you know strong sense of the church's importance as a covenantal unit? And same thing with the family. So yeah, just I try to identify you know the biblical approach there to viewing the family as God views it. Yeah, well, what I try to do in the things I've written is uh, point out to people that the recreational household that has developed in the 20th and 21st centuries is an anomaly. It's not the, the same kind of thing that people took for granted in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. The, the household uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution was a, was a productive enterprise. It, it was something that was... A, that, that people relied on for everything, everything from education to care in old age to food, you know, just across the board. Because it was a working concern, everybody had a role in contributing to the health of a household, but they also obviously derived the benefits of belonging to a household. And the father's task as the head of the household was to make certain that the household was productive and prospering. Yes, right. So... His authority was completely, or not completely, but largely wrapped up with that. Now we have a situation where people just think of their households as a place to kind of crash at the end of the day, watch a little television, surf the internet, maybe, you know, eat a, you know, a, a microwave dinner, everybody in their own room, <laughs> that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And the way, the way households are, are interpreted today, or, how, or the way they're understood, is just places where I'm supposed to be affirmed and made to feel special. And that's it. So we're all kind of like little centers of the universe. And mom and dad are friends to the kids. And, you know, you know, we're supposed to just all kind of live alongside each other as, you know, we kind of all pursue our individual, I guess, courses of action, you know, our careers, uh, 
And, you know, they're, they're, like you note, the, there's very little holding that all together. Mm. At a practical level in the past, it was, it was absolutely inconceivable that people would live in a house without contributing to its welfare. So everybody was playing a role in the, in the health of a household. Today, we have a situation where it's almost the reverse. If, if, if you are expected to do things, it's almost like it's a crime against humanity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of yeah. Right. Yeah. We, we like to refer to what we call family economy as very fundamental to the vision that we're casting. So many of our conferences, we did a number of family economics conferences through the years, and uh, just the word oikonomia, you know, economics oh, yeah. comes from, you know, the, the vision of the family, the basic economic units, not the individual. The basic right. economic unit is the oikos. It's the family. Economics right. is family, you know, effectively. That's, that's right. Yeah, the, the, the market stole the name. It yeah, it did. To the yeah, household. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So let's get back to some oikonomia. Let's get back to family economy. And friends, we're going to restore a vision for the household uh, through a conference coming up in Branson, Missouri. That's the goal is just to, just to try to do the best we can to understand God's purpose for the household and to restore something of a vision for the household in the 21st century. And uh, we've got to do this. We've got to encourage others that are on the way to restoration, to redemption of the biblical family in the 21st century. This conference, I think, really critical. And it's Branson, Missouri, coming up in just uh, about a month and a half or so. It's March 10th and 11th uh, in Branson, Missouri. It's Reforming Family Conference. And Chris Willie will be uh, talking about his book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, Recovering a Christian Vision for the Family. And I'm planning to share on family-based discipleship, reforming family relationships, and a generational vision for the future and islands of freedom. So that's on March 10th and 11th at the Copeland Theater in Branson, Missouri. And here's the website. So for anybody who's interested, if you're out in the Midwest and you're saying, we'd like to come down to this conference and meet Chris and Kevin. Uh, here's the website. Now, you're going to have to write it down because this isn't something you memorize, okay? So here it is, thefrhc.com. So that's it. It's the uh, Family Reformation Conference, but uh, you've got to write it down. The, T-H-E, thefrhc.com. Thefrhc.com to check out this conference. And uh, I just think there be a lot of really interesting discussions conversations, uh, of course, good fellowship, and hopefully some equipping and envisioning talks from Chris and myself. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the program. We appreciate uh, you, you connecting for just a few minutes. I'm sure you have much more to say. And we'll catch you in Branson. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Looking forward to uh, spending some time with you. And you have been listening to the Generations Radio Broadcast. If you'd like to interact with the radio program, email me directly at hostofkevinswanson.com. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 